LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and today we present part two of our interview with Jim Elvidge, who joins us to discuss his book, Digital Consciousness, A Transformative Vision. If you haven't yet heard part one, you can find it at LegalizeFreedom.com. That's Legalize-Freedom.com, and you can spell Legalize with an S or a Z. The interview resumes as we discuss the potential similarities between the fundamental nature of reality and a computer game scenario. Okay, well, a little while ago you mentioned reality as computer game analogy. I know some people feel that that's a bit overused or simplistic, but actually in the sections of the book where you talk about quantum physics, you begin to see how when people are looking at at quantum phenomena and trying to say, well, why does that happen? And how how can we tie that in with the, the reality that we experience that the mechanisms and sort of behaviors at the quantum level start to suggest or start to show how something like a computer game analogy might actually be very useful and maybe why it has endured. Uh, For example, the observer effect that people will be familiar with if they look to even basic quantum physics, that the act of observation locks in the position of a particle until that point it's indeterminate and this is a lot like the quote from your book the the phrase that you use is reality as needed and this also gives rise to the idea of like you know if a tree falls over in the woods and no one's there to hear it does it make a sound sort of thing well the suggestion would be probably not and I remember in the 1980s my first ever home computer was a Commodore 64 I don't know if you remember those Oh, I do, yes. So pretty sludgy in terms of processing power, but it was one of the best available at the time for the domestic market. And there was one game I remember, I don't remember what the hell it was, but you were exploring a virtual reality. It looked kind of like a bargain basement version of Tron or something like that. And you wandered around this landscape, and I clearly remember at certain times you would turn a corner in this landscape, and you would see whatever structure was in front of you, just suddenly quickly being finished, you know, maybe a pyramid or something. It's like, oh, I just saw the last bit of that pyramid going into place. So basically it wasn't there until I turned the corner, if you see what I mean, until mm-hmm. until I'd observed it. And um, when I read the phrase in your book, reality is needed, and started to think about the quantum analogies for, uh, for what we actually experience, it started to make a lot of sense. And some of the phenomena that I mentioned earlier, the anomalous phenomena, if you think about it, some of these things that we experience in the world that are that are very strange and would fall under the, the realms of paranormal or supernatural begin to suggest a, a reality is needed model. Something like all of this stuff isn't here, if you see what I mean, in the sense that mm-hmm. we in the sense that we think it is. 
Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering if the game you're talking about is uh, Quake or there's another one called Doom, I think, that uh, that were like that. You could just kind of wander around all over the place. Now, there, there are kind of two possibilities there with those early um, computers. One could be that all that stuff was actually constructed and was loaded into your memory and as you, or your computer memory um, but as you move to a different room because your computer memory is limited it has to pull in some more data from somewhere to um, you know for, for that room or for the next uh, you know set of uh, rooms that you're walking through and it takes a little while then to render that on the screen you know that's you know that's that's one model um, and you could argue there that the problem is just sort of a caching or keeping up with it but then there's another idea that, and, and this, you know, we've, we've definitely built uh, computer systems um, and games that follow this, where there is no, uh, you know, fixed construct. I, I forget the name of it. There's, there's one game now where you can go out and kind of explore the universe, and it creates it as you go. So in that case, it is exactly what we're talking about, this dynamic reality generation thing. You know, as you go, the, the system keeps up with you and creates something new. Every single person has a different experience um, in, that, in that game, and that's really cool. Well, you know, so what does that mean about our, our current reality? And I, I've used this analogy before. Um, if, you're, if you're in a video game and you come across a room that has a door, but you can't open the door, it's locked, and it has no windows, does the game have to design what's inside the room? Uh, no, it doesn't. In, in fact, it would probably be computationally inefficient to do so. But now, as soon as you find the key to open the door, now it makes sense to, just in time, create what's inside that room. It's, so that's a, you know, that's a very efficient way to, um, to, to run a very high-level all-encompassing kind of game or simulation like that is to create things as you need them. Well, that is exactly what seems to happen in these quantum experiments. Uh, there's even one uh, called the Delayed Choice Quantum Eraser Experiment that takes out the possibility that your detector is somehow influencing the, um, the results. And basically... Um, what, what, what happens is there's a, a, a screen that these particles are shot at, and when there's an interference pattern on the screen, it means that you don't know which uh, slot the particles went through. So it's indeterminate at that point. The detection of which slot they went through occurs after they've hit the screen. And when that detection is done, the interference pattern disappears because... In order for this experiment to be complete, you know, now that the detection has done, you know, you go back in time, the interference pattern dis disappears, and now you know which slot the particles went through. There are two different um, directions they could have gone. So, so it's almost like a, you know, reverse causality thing. You know, something's happened after, you know, the, the experience later. And it baffles people because of this reverse causality idea, but it doesn't baffle you if you realize that you didn't have to have a path. These particles didn't have to have a path until it was needed. And what needed, what does that mean? Does it mean needed because somebody is now observing it? There's a human consciousness in there, you know, trying to figure out which path they went through? Or was it needed because 
the experiment had a detector there that had to record something and store it away. And so now there was a reason for the path to be created. You see, either way, it's exactly the same analogy as that dynamic reality generation that we talked about before, that we, we didn't need to create it until it was needed. Uh, so it's not like that that fixed, you know, objective deterministic reality is sitting out there waiting for us to discover it. That's absolutely not what's going on. It unfolds as we discover it. And that's that's the the you know the big learning out of these experiments. Well, if we consider a couple of the explanations that are offered by the digital consciousness model, uh, probably the headline one would be the phenomena that we've talked about uh, extensively so far. Anything that would fall under the banner of paranormal, supernatural, psychic phenomena, these things not only become possible under this model, but sort of inevitable, really. I think the phrase you use in the book is accessing data streams, or it's something very similar, which is basically all of these, if we, we just use the rubric of psychic phenomena, all these things that appear unexplainable. When you consider that you're reaching beyond the narrow limits of our five sense 3D reality to access information, we're scanning the matrix, then it it's not such a mystery. It doesn't mean that it's easy to do, but it means that it can be done, whether you learn to do it, whether you can intuitively do it, whether it sometimes happens by accident. It's just leakage coming in from a wider sphere, really. I remember, again, another thought that popped into my head when I was reading your book, and it's funny how many references there are to to things in popular culture that that come to me when I'm talking about these subjects. Again, I think it's just another way for this information to get out to people through non-mainstream news or science journals or whatever. Uh, There's a 1995 film by Michael Mann called Heat. It's about basically about the the, uh, fortunes of some armed bank robbers and one of the associates of the gang um, has got some information for them about how much money is going to be in a certain bank at a certain time. And this is pre-internet. So you guys want to go into this bank on this day. There's going to be millions. And so one of the robbers says, how did you get this information? And he replies, it just comes to you. This stuff just flies through the air. It's just beamed out, <laughs> it's just beamed out all over the place. You just have to grab it. And I know how to grab it. And that, it was like in another century, in another millennia, he might have been considered psychic. How did you know these things? Right. Yeah, I, I love that. That's a, that's a, a perfect analogy. Yeah, I, I kind of think of it this way. I, I think in the the bigger reality, there is probably a recording of everything that's going on, essentially. You know, some people have used the term Akashic Record. Um, yeah, it's a, a similar concept. Um, so everything I'm thinking, everything that I do, every experience that I have, it's, you know, it's once it's experienced, it's kind of stored out there. So that means that, Anybody else theoretically could access it, but not unless they're separate from their brain, right? You know, you know, if, if our consciousness is out there and you're storing this stuff out there in the greater reality, then other consciousnesses could theoretically get to it. Now, I think there's probably some kind of, I don't know, like soft rules about keeping a lot of this information from everybody because if you realize how soft everything is you then take the lessons that you're learning in this world and in this lifetime a little bit less seriously and i think 
the value of the consensus reality and the experience that we're having that feels hard and fixed is that we take it seriously. And so, you know, whatever we learn, however we evolve, we learn to be more patient, we learn to love or whatever, we take those things seriously and, and those things are what's evolving our, our consciousness. If we didn't have that separation of all the other stuff, uh, we might not take it as, as seriously. So I think there's, there's a point to it. But obviously it's a little bit leaky because people do experience these things. And, and as you were mentioned earlier, why the leak? The leak has probably given us the hints and the hints is what keeps us thinking and keeps us uh, investigating. I, I have a belief that all the stuff is out there and you know remote viewing experience experiments kind of bear this out too it's out there but you can't get to it because you're busy dealing with the monkey chatter that's going inside your head what am i having for dinner um you know what did i do yesterday re, re, you know re recalling a you know a significant conversation you had you know what am i going to do tomorrow uh who do i need to call what do i need to do all these kind of things are going around in your head all the time and so that's occupying your your you know conscious thoughts you don't have the ability to d dig down deeper unless you do something about that and that's what meditation is all about meditation is about clearing out that monkey chatter so that now your awareness is free to go somewhere else it doesn't have to be in this this reality anymore it can go back to where the seat of your consciousness is which is why when people meditate or um, you know, have experiences with kind of ritualistic drums or dancing or something like that, that they tap into some greater truths and they, they have these spiritual experiences. It's because they're able to both focus and let go of the monkey chatter at the same time. Um, and, and that, that gives us the, the access to this other stuff. Now, as you mentioned in the book, when you're looking at the overall digital consciousness model, you know, the simulation, whatever you, you want to call it, you point out that it's not an infinite system. And we talked earlier about, it, you know, efficiencies within it, you know, just doing what it can with the adequate resources, but not excess resources because there's no need. Now, your theory offers actually origin of life explanation, uh, which is amazing in itself. But I wonder, um, I suppose it can't really get past the, or circumvent the origin theory event horizon. That is to say, you know, you mentioned Tom Campbell earlier. There's a point beyond which we cannot see. And, uh, in his work, he takes that as, as a given and an accepted thing. Okay. I get that. I can't keep going back and back and back layers and layers of the onion, as it were, because the, the fundamental question for me when I, finish considering your idea is what well, okay well what's behind this so mm -hmm. i'm guessing that you accept there's just a point beyond which we will not go in order that we can actually move forward in some way of exploring these ideas uh, because if you just take what's the ultimate the alpha point the under the underlying strata is there anything beyond that it's a bit like you know when you're a kid if you ever considered the edge of the universe you know if it ends and what's beyond it i used to spend hours thinking about that yeah yeah i I try to avoid that a little bit. Like it's fun to speculate about it. And you know, you could write a book about speculating what's unknowable, speculating about what's unknowable. Um, but then that's, that's also called, well, it, it could be called fiction or science fiction or philosophy or whatever. Um, it's not what really my focus in this is really things that, that are closer to 
the experience realm. Now, that's just me. That's just my experience. Um, Tom, you mentioned Tom Campbell. He, uh, you know, he, he told me that he's had thousands of hours of experiences outside of this physical reality. So he's somebody who's coming from this with a different point of view. I've had a little bit, not a lot, um, but he's had a ton of experiences outside of this. So he can, you know, he can write things based on the knowledge that he gained from interacting with others in that realm um, that that I can't really. Um, I'm I'm just saying, you know, in terms of like what's behind this and how did it start and all that, I kind of referenced, you know, one of his ideas in the book. Um, and I think it's a cool idea because I think it explains where things are at now. I think it's a good, you know, definitely good. And maybe that's the right thing. Um, to me, it's kind of unknowable because I just haven't haven't been there, and I think that's uh, you know that's okay. But you know, we we all have our own set of things that we've had experiences for and beliefs based on those and so forth. And you know, I think the interesting thing is if you take Tom's experience and Robert Monroe's experience and Edgar Casey's experience and the Buddha's experience and Muhammad's experience and you know. The ex- spiritual experiences, the otherworldly, out-of-body experiences that um, mystics and meditators and astral travelers and all of those kinds of people have had, there's really a lot of very similar threads to them. And that, that to me, is also profound. I mean, you could say, well, they're similar because they've they're based on the same thing. They're based on, say, Buddhist teaching, which everybody has had. Um, but, but I think if you actually look at the bigger picture, you realize that there were, um, you know, ancient wisdoms that, um, that, that built up where there, there was no correlation between them. There was no cause and effect or there wasn't nothing that came first. They just built up independently. Or, you know, people like Edgar Casey had no knowledge of, of these things and wrote, wrote stuff down. There are people in uh, Brian Weiss's, um, book about, uh, past life regressions who had no experience with, you know, understanding what the ancient wisdoms were. And yet they, they reported the same things when they experienced the in-between world in between their lives that, you know, we're all connected. We have a purpose. Uh, material things have no meaning or lasting value. We can, uh, sh- you know, shape, uh, control our destiny. Um, the world's illusory. Love is the way. All, all these kinds of things are, they're, they're not, you know, it doesn't make sense that they would all be identical in all of these experiences where, you know, people have no, grounds for for making them identical another major question here then is was the universe the reality learning lab uh, the digital consciousness however you want to express it designed for life or did it evolve that way that is to say is there a creator behind it uh, you know again what some traditions refer to as god a sort of matrix architect and it's some sort of intelligent entity that set this running or did it, is it an evolving thing? And as some people have theorized that, that we may be part or perhaps all of the consciousness of the universe, where the universe becoming aware of itself, that there isn't actually you know, the consciousness is an evolving thing. Awareness is an evolving thing and we're it. Yeah. And I tend to, I tend to go that way. And again, I go that way because of the, 
experiences that people have had in these other realms and what they've said and the sort of confluence of, of points that they've had. You know, you could argue there's a, an entity out there, you know, like a, a machine or an alien or something like that that created this whole uh, world for us, but it doesn't explain why we would have uh, the spiritual experiences or the near-death experiences or uh, precognition or, or, or things like that. It doesn't explain that very well. So I, I do tend to, you know, fall in that side of things, that there's not a... Um, you know, anthropomorphized God that created this stuff. It's more like the bigger system is all that there is. And again, when you read ancient religions, Hinduism, Sikhism, you know, Buddhism, um, they, you know, that that's what they say too. You know, God is is all that there is. You know, God isn't a guy with a white beard. You know, who has um, human emotions. In fact, in Tom Campbell's point of view, the all that there is is kind of dispassionate. It's it has an objective to evolve um, in in some way in that evolution. And he calls uh, uh, lowering of entropy, um, you know, becoming compassionate and so forth. That is also consistent with ancient wisdoms. Um, so it, so it has that direction. But the way that it goes about it, um, you know, it could be trying different things. It, it could be constantly feeding back on itself and saying, you know, is this working? Um, are they ready for this? You know, should we try this? Did this experiment over here work? No, let's not do that again. Let's try something different. You know, that's that's sort of the fundamental continuous improvement idea, and that really seems like that's what's going on. I you know, I think that um, human evolution is something that's happening. I think that we're part of that. We're part of that because we have free will, and uh, and, and so as things unfold, we're ready for we're ready to be shown the next level. We're shown the next level. We explore that. We get new experiences there. Uh, and I think, you know, so I think it does tend to show that the, uh, you know, the God, if you will, the, the force behind it is not a particular individual. It's more a continuously evolving uh, concept. It doesn't take anything away from the spirituality of it. You know, it, you know, if you want to say that becoming one with God is is important to you, you know, there's a, a place for that. You know, it's you're already part of the of a, all that there is. So therefore, you're already part of God. Um, you're just spending a lot of your time in this reality learning lab, and maybe at some point you decide you don't want to do that anymore, and now you're outside of it. That's the nirvana concept, um, or you know, getting uh, you know being being finished with the cycle of. Uh, physical incarnations kind of thing. Yeah, and what you've just set out, that allows for good and evil. This dispassionate system, as you describe it, allows for those things because it's probing and testing and trying things out. Because uh, people often ask about, you know, they ponder the existence of evil in the world and they question our nature and, and the possibility of, of God. And I think that that, that what you've set out answers that. Yeah, I do too. And, and good and evil, they're human concepts. If you also think about that, we don't, and it's funny, there, there was a, it just reminded me of one scene in one of the Matrix movies where the architect said, I think he said, yeah, we had a, a simulation that was too perfect. Um, and so I don't know where people didn't evolve or something like that. We, we learn from, 
from pain and from failures and things like that. We don't learn from doing the same thing over and over again. We kind of maybe dig a groove into our brain a little bit deeper or into our consciousness a little bit deeper of, you know, this is how you do things. Just keep on doing that. But that doesn't evolve us in any way at all. We, we get, we evolve our thinking by, um, solving problems or trying things and failing. And the failing can come in the term of, uh, of pain. So the, the word evil is, again, it's, it's a human concept. And it's because of free will decisions that are made by conscious entities out there, you know, us, and the, we, we have to deal with them and we have to learn from them and, and figure out how to move on beyond that. So it's, you know, it's our own choosing, you know, it's not that the system is bad or that God is bad and, and has this, you know, set of evil out there or that there's a evil twin, you know, Satan or something like that. It's that we are creating what we consider to be bad. Well, many people currently will feel that we're in the midst of some sort of existential crisis, that we're as a species, we're going backwards. Uh, though, again, you could look back at the course of human history and say that it's been a, a case of uh, two steps forward, one step back. But, to be optimistic, you point out in the book that you feel there can be no apocalyptic event as such. You know, this is a system that's geared for optimization, continual improvement. And if it is one step back, that there's, that'll still at some point, there'll be steps forward. And it's all learning and probing and testing and seeing what works and what doesn't. And to use the computer game analogy again, you talk about uh, a reset point, uh, you know, which we all are familiar with in our computers. If something goes wrong, you can go back to an earlier stage. Uh, return to a point prior to the the problem, as it were. Not saying that's how things would actually work, but for especially for people who feel that we're on a one way ride to hell, basically, as it were, and that there's whatever lies in our future, it's it's some form of of bad. That your the digital consciousness perspective really reframes all of that, especially when taken in the light of what we just said about good and evil. Yeah, it does. And to be honest, uh, Greg, my thinking is definitely evolving um, as time goes on. I'm, you know, working on an article right now about evolving mind and, and thinking about apocalyptic events and the singularity that, that the transhumanists talk about and what that could mean in a digital consciousness model. And, um, you know, so I'm not... Uh, not discounting the possibility that there could be an apocalyptic event that would cause a reset of sorts, um, you know, or a, you know, <laughs> patch upgrade to the reality learning lab or something like that. Um, yeah, definitely, that definitely is possible. And, and I think I need to think that uh, through a lot more. However, that said, you know, history has shown that we've always, for, for you know, many periods in our recent history, at least, you know, there have been, a, a lot of people who have felt that we were on uh, an apocalyptic path. For example, the Industrial Revolution, there was a, you know, a sector of thinkers that this was, you know, causing the uh, end of humanity, and they pointed to reasons why, and it didn't, it didn't happen, at least it hasn't happened yet. Uh, same thing with uh, nuclear Armageddon, you know, the doomsday clock was two seconds to midnight back in the 60s, uh, and it just seemed like such a bleak outlook for future that you have all these nukes all over the place and somebody at some point is going to use one and then all hell's going to break loose and it hasn't happened. Um, 
population explosion was a big fear in the 70s. People were writing articles about how uh, we're going to run out of food in 20 years, or you know, then there was the energy crisis, we're going to run out of oil in 20 years, and we're not ready for that. Um, now it's global warming. And I'm not saying that these things aren't important things to, to look at, but it does seem like these are the one step back that you talked about against the two step forwards that we seem to keep on having. If you look at the broader trend, if you kind of filter out the, the dips, the ups and downs, and look at the broader trend, it does feel, it does feel like, um, humanity is evolving in their thought process. And just a couple examples I'd give here is just looking at murder rates. Um, you know, there was a book I read, uh, Freakonomics, I think, where they talked about the murder rates in the Middle Ages in Europe and comparing them today. And, and the trend has been, you know, progressively declining. You know, people are more respectful of other people's lives. It could be because they, you know, feel a greater connection to other people and they are empathetic to other people's situations much more than they used to be. That's an evolutionary um, aspect to our uh, our thinking and then the way we treat animals too you know we treat animals as our own as our property uh, for you know many years ever since the uh, agricultural revolution now we're starting to not do that as much i think there was um, you know a european country maybe one of the scandinavian countries that that recently you know declared that uh Animal, animals were not meant to be kept in captivity, or it was something similar to that. But the, there, there are continuous, you know, breakdowns of that idea and recognition that animal consciousness is something significant that um, is no more or less important than human consciousness, and we ought to treat it that way. And I think that's an evolution in thinking. And in my view, the what the all that there is has done by broken itself up into individuated consciousnesses and and giving those individuated consciousness the directive to evolve makes it evolve itself faster you know effectively let's use the word god again god is evolving faster because all of you know those parts of god are evolving faster um you know so so it, it isn't just us out there, but there's the consciousnesses of the dogs and the cows and the fish and the fleas that are also out there in all that there is, also evolving. And if you look at it that way, then you have to have more respect for your, you know, fellow conscious entities that aren't human. Um, so I, you know, I think there, there's a couple examples of where I think our, um, our thinking, our general, mentality is evolving you know there are some where maybe it's not but those are those are some i think the greater trend is um has been positive now the coming singularity that's a big question mark but it could be just another one of these things like the population explosion that that predicts the end of the world um now and how ai is the thing that's going to be the end of the world and maybe something's going to happen you know one of the things i'm exploring is we tend to think that AI is going to outpace um, humans because, why do we think that? We think that because our brains are fixed, but that's the wrong thinking. Our mind isn't just in our brain. We don't necessarily have to, you know, evolve only, you know, due to the construct of the brain. I mean, think of how 
television programming, movies have gotten better, even though the TV is still projecting the same thing, uh, if you see what I mean. So our consciousnesses out there could possibly evolve just as fast as the AI that we're creating in the Reality Learning Lab. And I'm not sure that it'll necessarily outpace us then. So maybe that's the way the apocalyptic event of the singularity will be avoided. I don't know. This is very early in speculative thinking, but um, just kind of wanted to address those things that you brought up. No, no. And speaking about the transhumanist um, agenda is very important, actually, in, in this context, that the idea uh, the, the fear, however you want to express it, is that uh, AI will quote-unquote develop consciousness uh, or possibly that we will be able to transfer our own individual conscious, consciousness to a machine uh, in some way to uh, outlast you know, the physical human body. And I just think all of that uh, misunderstands consciousness, really. If consciousness is the ground of reality, that, you know, we're part of it, individuated units of it, then no AI system embedded in that can, can develop consciousness. It's just, if you see what I mean, because it's within it already. So, and you said basically in your book, you say we don't need to fear Skynet, uh, Skynet being the, the supercomputer in the Terminator films. But it doesn't mean that some kind of intelligent, you know, automated computerized machine or system couldn't wreak havoc in our our reality it certainly could but there's the idea that popularized by transhumanists or some of the ideas anyway i I just think that they're they misunderstand consciousness and that isn't i don't think it's an existential threat to us yeah i i tend to agree um you know i think about the the theory the, the thinking that that they have is based on the idea that it's over when we die that's why they want to upload consciousness so they can be immortal. What if you know you're already immortal? What if you know your consciousness is already immortal? Then that takes away that whole argument. You know, the whole need to upload your consciousness into silicon or merge with machines so that you can become immortal and conquer the universe or whatever doesn't make any sense anymore. You know, we're, we're already going through that cycle of evolving our consciousness. Our, and and I, I don't even want to say the word immortal because... Who knows? Um, you know, maybe in the greater picture, at some point, the the system reshapes itself. All that there is reshapes itself, um, and our consciousness uh, dissolves, and and a new one is formed. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it, I, I could leave that possibility open, but that's totally at a different level than the way the transhumans are thinking. They're thinking, you know, from the materialist standpoint, that hey, you know, if I want to be immortal, I got to get myself. Uh, you know, my consciousness loaded up into uh, silicon somewhere. You know, one of the, and, and as I mentioned, you know, the flaw with that is assuming that you're, you're not already immortal. And that would completely change the motivation behind that. That said, the question is, could a human consciousness occupy an artificial intelligence or occupy a, a, the construct behind an artificial intelligence? And that is is possible to me. Like, imagine... Your consciousness is out there saying, okay, I'm attached to this avatar, this human avatar that is basically a set of information and, uh, and rules in the reality learning lab. And I'm having my, my experiences there. Um, but I want to see what it's like to be a robot. So I'm going to, um, attach my consciousness to that robot entity there. You're going to find right now that it's pretty boring because the robots are very, deterministic things you know 
you know, AIs right now are not solving complex problems. They're, they're solving very deterministic, simple problems uh, still. So I don't think you'd have much of an experience in, in occupying that. Um, however, if it ever gets to the point where a silicon-based construct, which again is just an information vessel in the reality learning lab, just like a human being is, if it ever gets complex enough where it could have the rich experience that you're having as a biological being in this reality learning lab, then maybe your consciousness says, hey, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that out. So that could be the mechanism where AI becomes sentient, but it's not that it came, became sentient as an emergent property of the programming itself. It became sentient because a consciousness out there decided to occupy it. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I, I could see that as a possibility. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right on that. That that totally makes sense. I know there's some things yet to be determined, and we don't quite know what turn uh, t- technology might take. But uh, that that seems like a more uh, consistent and logical uh, line of thinking to take than than some of them out there. Well, Jim, as we draw things to a close for today, I'll just offer um, a closing thought uh, regarding the implications of the digital consciousness model and whatever the state of the world happens to be right now uh, many people feeling a sense of dread and simultaneously emptiness and meaninglessness this paradigm that you're offering up whatever is going on around us it suggests this overarching purpose and it can really change the way that we experience our current reality and we begin to understand that the good and evil we talked about before yeah bad things happen but if there's a thrust and a direction to all of this that maybe that can help us to reframe how we think about our lives and about the wider reality and also to make some positive changes if this is an evolutionary process and it doesn't have to have any uh spiritual or religious overtones uh, unless we want to put them there but that maybe we understand that if we change how that we live uh, in this interconnected uh, reality, that that can have a, an effect on the overall direction of travel. Uh, and the popular ideas, or sorry, popular ways of expressing some of these ideas are those of like karma, for example, that actions have consequences. And it's just something to take on board and maybe meditate upon as people as people go forward. Yeah, I very much agree, Greg. It's a, it's a great way to end this because you could ask the question, oh, this all sounds interesting, but so what? What does that mean to me? Well, it, it can mean a lot if you, if you recognize it. If, you know, we talked about the transhumanist, the humanity plus idea may be misdirected if you realize that, um, you know, you're, you're already immortal. You don't need to worry so much about, you know, squeezing that extra five years out of your life um you know in a in a painful way enjoy life as it exists uh you know spend more money on curing diseases rather than life extension um you know you realize that there's a purpose then you'll start treating people differently and if you realize that we're all really connected then it doesn't make sense for us to be in competition for resources that are part of a uh, a learning system. You know, wars don't even make sense anymore. Geographical boundaries don't make that much sense. Um, 
you know, the, the, the feeling of hopelessness is, uh, is a belief trap. It's a belief that things aren't going to get better. But you're actually in control of your beliefs if you recognize that your consciousness is external to your mind. You, you can get out of that belief trap through the power of intent. And uh, so, I, so I think there's a lot of good positive messages in this idea that can lead to a more... Uh, a better worldview and a more harmonious existence with uh, with our, uh, you know, uh, w- with our other human uh, coexistence and, and and animals and and every everything else that's out there. Well, I just want to leave folks with a quote from your book, uh, which I it resonated particularly with me, and that is, "As soon as one door closes, another opens." almost as if the universe wants to be understood. Jim, today we've been talking about your new book. It's called Digital Consciousness, A Transformative Vision. Uh, That's available everywhere. Perhaps you'd just like to tell listeners about your website and anything you might be working on or anything else you'd like to share. Sure. Um, Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. The the website is theuniversesolved.com, which was named after the first book, and I didn't create a second site just for this book. So, um, that first one has everything. And basically it's, uh, there's a little bit about some of the digital philosophers on there. Uh, my blog you can connect to from there. And I've posted, I don't know, 80 or so different, um, articles about all, all of these ideas. Uh, so there's more information there. I try to link to other people who have similar ideas and there's a forum where people can, um, interact and talk about their experiences. Uh, unfortunately, right now the forum's down because I just um, converted or had uh, my uh, internet service provider convert the site over to Secure SSL and it broke the forum. So I'm waiting for them to try to fix that or figure out if I can fix it myself. Um, but that's that's also a good place for people to just um, interact and talk about uh, some of this stuff. So yeah, the books available, you know, pretty much everywhere. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. If it's not in a bookstore, uh, bookstores have it in the database, so they can uh, always order it. And you know, some independent bookstores may be uh, carrying it as well. Um, there's a Kindle version and the uh, soft cover version, both available. Splendid. Well, Jim, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. No, thank you very much, Greg. Always great to talk to you. Uh, so I look forward to uh, the next time. Thank <laughs> you.